Hello, welcome to Dustbusters, your inseparable companion podcast to His Dark Materials. I'm Jake Cunningham, and as you probably know by now, I love these books very much. I'm Louisa Maycock. Again, you probably know that me and Jake have been together for a while, and I've never read these books. But we are together delving into the world of the His Dark Materials TV series. So welcome back to the podcast if you're just joining us, or welcome back to episode two if you've already caught up with us. We are firmly into the world of The Subtle Knife now. That's the second book in the original His Dark Materials series. And we are far beyond any screen version of these stories that's been told before. Uh, it's, it's a scary and very exciting time for Dark Materials fans. Uh, and as any book readers out there will know, we are only at the tip of the iceberg. But before we look at what lies ahead, it's time to step back through the window and into our world and remember what has happened so far. So, Louis. Remind us. Why do you always throw this? <laughs> you're so fluent and good at this, and then you just suddenly throw it over to me like you're throwing me a ball, and I've can't catch it. But I, I think this is a great exploration into uh, how well this story is being told. Is it not? Okay, so so like, episode one. Yes, we were introduced to Sitigatsi, Chitigatsi, whichever. I like the ball. Chitigatsi. Chitigatsi. Well, I, they'll probably probably won't do this in the show, but in when it's first introduced, it's an abbreviation. It's Chigatsi. Okay. Which is C-I apostrophe Gatsi, which is okay. not the Chitigatsi of the show. Okay. But whatever you like, just vibe it. Just vibing it. Okay, so Lyra and Will have met, um, which was nice. Mrs. Coulter upped her old tricks. What else happened? You said there was one of the cur- most cursed images you've ever seen? Oh, yeah. Lyra has an omelette and holds it like a burrito, which is just... <laughs> the texture. I still can't get over it. In, in your hands, just wet egg. <laughs> what else happened? Uh, so, yes, as you said, Lyra and Will enter Chittagatze, uh, which is this uh, city which is all it's all built up with a tower spire in the centre and it's kind of got a Mediterranean type feel a touch of a favela as well in the way that they all kind of topple against each other the houses here we've got a city that's kind of been abandoned by all of the adults because they are being ravaged by the spectres which are they steal your soul yeah very cool uh, well not, <laughs> love that not, for them yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, not going to tell them what to do if if they just want to eat souls, whatever. You do you. Yeah, exactly. Spectres are eating souls, but only grown-up souls, so this city is full of children. And then at the end of that episode, Lyra decides that she can trust Will, this guy that she's just met, and they're going to go together into Will's world, a.k.a. our world. Uh, also, we've got Lee who's on a quest to find a man called Stanislas Grauman and, uh, and, a, and an object that can protect Lyra. Uh, that was only a, a small scene and we, we don't actually get any more of that in this new episode. Um, and we've also got the the witches who are traditionally ambivalent to the actions of the humans are caught in a war with the magisterium, the all-powerful governmental body and Mrs. Coulter is kind of the puppet master behind the scenes of all of the Magisterium's actions. 
So that is how everything has been laid out before us as we dive into episode two, The Cave. So as we've been doing throughout the series, we'll kind of split things into the locations where they're taking place rather than track them that they track them through the way that they are in the episode. The bulk of this one is spent with Lyra and Will, so that's what we're going to cover first. Starts with a lovely montage of Lyra trying on outfits to fit into our world. Some looks that you'll be stealing, Louis. Yep, definitely. Spring summer twenty twenty one. I'll be wearing cape and large hat. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> your your late grandmother was a fan of the crazy hat. We never quite got to the bottom of what the crazy hat would be. Yeah, I, I think she said that it would be a good gift. A good gift. Or maybe something that someone should invent. Yes, a crazy hat. And uh, Lyra has a hat that's fairly crazy. Uh, Just she... very large. Yeah, yeah. High fashion. A, a wide brim. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and she also gets told, in what I'm sure is a reference to Edna Mode from The Incredibles, that there are no capes. Uh, despite the fact that it looks like a pretty cool cape. And so Lyra will get through the window into our world... Uh, Which is a big deal. Lyra, maybe even more so than Will going into her world, I feel like. Yeah. It's her coming into our world. Mm. It would be quite amazing. Mm. Um, And she instantly gets hit by a car. Yeah. As she says, cars are much slower in her world. They haven't quite caught up to the Toyota Corollas. uh, I didn't quite get that comment. Why? What would... What is it about her world that makes cars well they, they don't have cars like cars. Oh, they have it's limps more, yeah don't they? it's slightly early 20th century feel i suppose okay. in lyra's okay. world so there are cars but they're not quite they'll be noisier and mm. these I mean, hybrid she, cars exactly if she if she all these ubers just yeah. sneaking up on you from nowhere with no engine sound at all yeah, I mean, and that's the focus of the Amber Spyglass, is, is Lyra versus electric cars. Uh, that's the main issue. What are they issue. called? Toyota Prius? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Toyota Prius has become a key character. Um, what would the Toyota Prius's demon be? <laughs> <laughs> My demon is a, t- a Toyota Prius. Makes me worry that Elon Musk is going to pop up <laughs> someone uh, down the line That's as well. quite a... A name that you would expect to come across in a Philip Pullman novel. Yeah, you'd feel like that's more in Lyra's world. Yeah, yes, Elon. Elon Musk has been stuck in the north for years. But Lyra gets hit by this car and Will has a plaster for her. Yeah. When we were watching this, I think I said something about how Will would be quite a good person to have around because he'd have that bag like your mum would have when uh, you were young yeah. that just had like a Mary Poppins-esque trove of everything you could ever need, like a snack, change of clothes, first aid kit. Yeah, for as long as I've known you, you you've said that the desire for when you are a mum is to have the perfect mum bag. Just to always have, you know when someone says, oh, does anyone have lip balm or some tissues? Just always have it. Yeah. And one of the great questions of episode one that's finally been answered, Will's been in Chigatse for three days, but his phone still has battery. Mm-hmm. What's he got? He's got a portable phone charger. Charging block. You were so excited by that. Like, that's my kind of guy. Yeah. I mean, we got to love Will. We stand a legend. 
<laughs> so wait a second. Logistically, so yeah. he was in the city mm. and didn't have the charging block. No, he did have the charging block. Was it just not? Why wasn't he using? Did he not have to? His, he, he must have had a new phone that could hold on to its battery for multiple days. It looked like a pretty new iPhone. And if he was just going airplane mode, like, all the time... Like you do, and I can yeah. never get hold of you. Exactly. <laughs> well, we are we are back with Will and Lyra. We're in Oxford. We see Lyra running around Oxford, and it feels it feels right at home. Yes, like, like, a homecoming. Yeah, it feels like those great moments from the first episode, where we, she's bouncing off with Roger. R.I.P. Yeah. Um, but this feels lovely, and she does something that I've desperately missed for the last seven eight months she goes to a museum lovely little museum not a fan of a museum am i no no that's one of our big disagreements isn't it i'm i would like to think of myself as a cultured person Mm. but there's just something about the museum art gallery environment that sends me into a quiet hysteria where i just need to sleep yeah i feel like uh, a museum in a way is your version of a spectre you, you, cr- you cross the threshold. <laughs> and you are the kind of person who likes to look at the each information uh, card yeah. and read every word. Yeah, I do. Um, do you remember when we went to the MoMA in New York? Yeah. And oh, I was not... In- oh, and you took so long. Yeah, it was great. One of my, my favourite things that I did uh, before lockdown was I went to... I went to the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich... And I, they were doing an exhibition about the moon, and I had the soundtrack to First Man downloaded on my phone, and so I just put my headphones on, listened to First Man, and walked around an exhibition by myself about the moon. It was wonderful. You would have hated it. <laughs> <laughs> also something Lyra was doing in that episode that you do, or maybe you don't do it anymore. Oh no, you've... I still do it. I'm glad you don't do it when you're with me, because... I could not keep up. But Lyra, I mean, she just had to get from A to B. And instead of walking like a, you normally would, she was just running. Mm. And that's something I've known about you for a while. Yeah. If you've got somewhere to go, rather than walking, it's much more efficient. To run. To run. Yeah. It's not going for a run. No. It's it's just like, if I need to get somewhere and I I can get there quicker if I run so I don't have time spent being bored. But don't you arrive at the destination feeling a bit hot and bothered? No, no. No, I feel right. I just I just don't like wasting time, which walking can be. Um, and Lyra evidently feels Has the same. Has no time to waste. Exactly. So she sees these nice adverts, uh, Save the Arctic, Story of the North, goes into this museum and asks the alethiometer what she needs to do. Uh, points her in the direction of this scientist at a dark matter research facility and Lyra has to um, not lie about what she's doing. Uh, and Pan makes a joke about that, saying <laughs> how she's not going to be able to tell the truth. And Pan does a great little smirk at this. <laughs> and I think it's one of a, a few times already this series where we've seen a bit more bantery Pan. Salty Pan, yes. I like to refer to him as. Yes, Salty Pan is a lot of fun. And I hope we get more of him because he kind of curves up the side of his mouth (laughs) and it's not a it's not a totally gentle lovely petty type smile it's uh i got you salty pan salty pan within this museum lyra meets boreal this is another key meeting and 
just casually, you've got your small girl, your grown man, having a chat about people that drill holes into skulls. Just normal stuff. Exactly. Uh, that's what I did at the moon exhibition. <laughs> um, just find a kid, talk to them about something weird and then leave. The thing that I liked in this, before she goes off to the museum, Will's like, gotta go check on my mum. See you in like five hours. Yeah. <laughs> You'd think that he'd be... Because he's on the run, yeah. pretty much. you think that leaving her, someone who lives in an alternative reality just alone wandering Oxford, he'd maybe be like, come with me? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> or go sit in Costa or something. Surely if, he, if he's got five hours, he could probably take Lyra with him, do what he needs to do, then go with her. They don't, like, they don't need to split up. Let's go and show Lyra Pret. Yep. m s Stuff, you know, the Great British High Street. <laughs> <laughs> Will and Lyra eating out to help out. Yeah. <laughs> But, well, they're not. They they are doing their own thing. Will is checking on his mum and make sure that she's okay with the hot misogynist. Um, they seem to be having a nice time. Yeah. Uh, it's just lovely. They just seem very, very happy. Uh, he learns about a trust fund that's been put in his name, uh, which was set up by his dad, who is another hot character from Fleabag. Mm-hmm. And he also learns that that trust fund can be only accessed via his grandparents and... So or never... if he comes of age. Yes. And he's never really had a relationship with them, but he goes to meet them. He, does, he doesn't know that they exist or no. they live in Oxford. Yeah, they don't exist, Louis, because they're not in the book. <laughs> <laughs> not in the book. You're not in the book. <laughs> not in the book. <laughs> and he does go and see them and they immediately dob him in to the police. Um... Now, I wasn't sure of this whole sequence. Mm. I found them to be completely unbelievable as because from their surroundings their house it was a it's a nice suburban area quite affluent the dialogue from the grandmother in particular i found to be though it was as though it's sort of 20 year olds dialogue dressed up in a queen's english type voice and that just took me out of the verisimilitude Mm. of the scene well, I suppose it, you can read it in two ways. Like the the hopeful way is that this is totally intentional because these characters haven't had a relationship, so their characters shouldn't naturally work together because they don't know each other. Uh, and I suppose that's your get out of jail free card for if your characters don't seem like they have any natural chemistry. It was like they were robots, but maybe that was the point that they hadn't been in his life, so they didn't the show creators didn't need to give them substance as characters they're sort of just veneers of grandparent figures yeah um but i think it's also because perhaps we are not used to seeing lots of performance in the real world yeah and so series one bulk of it is in lyra's world lyra's world is quite heightened it's certainly got fantasy elements it's got things that we don't know it's got language and dialects that we don't fully understand and because of that perhaps you can get away with less nuance because you're first having to grapple with this new world and this new language throughout whereas in our world it is instantly a world that we're comfortable in it's language that we understand so any flaws in that are much easier for yeah, us it's to a setting out. it's a setting we understand you know a magnolia living room yeah 
and they've done such a good job with the demons and their human demon interactions and like you see Lyra when she's comfortable and intimate with Pan and that chemistry feels so real and so lived that any time that we kind of break out of that uh, sometimes it can feel melodramatic and that's not just with Will and his grandparents it's occasionally between Will and Lyra as well Mm -hmm. it becomes a little bit loud Mm. Yeah. yeah everything is perhaps dialed up to more of a stage version than a screen version definitely um, but they're teenagers they <laughs> they have raw emotions they shout at each other uh, so perhaps you can kind of justify it like that but I, I know that's something that you've kind of picked out and perhaps it's just a mixture of dialogue that's not quite working with performances that aren't quite locked in mm-hmm. and so it just makes it feel a bit clunkier in those moments definitely i think yeah the human to human interactions sometimes can come across as it which is strange to be even you'd think that the interactions between an animal and a human would be the one that's contrived Mm. whereas it can be the human to human ones that come across as awkward yes but there is a human to human interaction that we did like um and instantly you were sold on a Miss Mary Malone. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping that she becomes a very important character and we have lots more of her. You did say, quote, I love this woman. Right? <laughs> uh, what is it you like about Mary? Um, Other than her Irish accent. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, yeah, that's a huge part. I know that that is one of my great flaws is that I've got Irish heritage, Irish background, but no accent. <laughs> you're good at putting it on, though. When we go to Ireland, it's like as soon as you're in the land you you can slip into it quite quickly and i can live in a pretend universe where you have an irish accent and everyone's happier but you don't need me anymore because you've got a lovely physicist called mary malone instead maybe she's everything you wish you were yeah i mean she's she certainly explores areas of science i'm interested in um she's got kind of a nice religious millstone that hangs around her as well well you think this uh, female scientist straight away is just cool mm and then you find that, hang on, her past, she was a nun. so she, And she's obviously turned her back on faith mm. in favour of cold hard facts. Mm. Although what she specialises in, it's a little bit less concrete. Exactly, than, it's really interesting, it's more theoretical. And it's more fluid and mm. what's the in-between in the spaces between stuff that we know to be absolutely certain. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Rather, rather like dust. Mm, it's interesting you say that, <laughs> Louis. You, we, I mean, looking at her, Mary as a character, the dichotomy of her background there, religion and science, kind of cut down the middle. Uh, that that is the backbone of so much of these books, and it's kind of being distilled into this one character who has to may have to navigate these things through her life. Um, I also like the small detail of her offering Lyra a biscuit, and. Then apologising because they're stale. (laughs) (laughs) And and that leads to a a really funny scene, which I totally related to, which was Lyra having to sit down in front of someone and explain everything that happened and then saying, but I keep getting it all wrong. (laughs) And and I feel that when I listen to the edits of these and I think, God, no, that's not right. That's not right (laughs) at all. Mainly Uh, probably you're thinking that when you listen to me waffle on about absolutely nothing. Oh, I'd happily listen to you waffle about anything, Louis. Um, but it, it kind of felt like this nice meta moment where Lyra recognised 
all the weird stuff she's done, which maybe at this point she has, she's just been always one foot in, in front of the other, always doing the next thing, the next thing, and she literally just collapses into a chair and has to say, well, here's everything that's happened. Let me just get you up to speed. And it's all about this thing that's to do with the original sin. <laughs> yes, so how this all comes together is Mary Malone's got this machine uh, which she's using to explore in our world what we call dark matter, um, these particles that engage with certain objects. And she's discovered that uh, artificial kind of organic objects that haven't had any human interaction with them don't really set this machine off. But she kind of clamps a chess piece into it, one that's been carved by a person, which has therefore had human interaction. And it, and it sets off the machine a bit more. Then she plugs herself into it, and it sets it off even more. Um, and she describes that to, when she plugged herself into it, she had to hold her mind in a certain way that wasn't like she was concentrating, but wasn't like she was absent. And it certainly sounded like the language that has been used before for another device isn't it sounds rather like how lyra um interprets and reads the alethiometer and so we're immediately thinking is this dust is this traveling through the bridge to us is this a thing that's already been here is well, dust lyra's, in all the world lyra's adamant from the beginning she's like that's dust this <laughs> yeah. is dust so mary malone's machine is called the cave and this thing that she's studying is this sh- is shadow particles this dark matter stuff and this leads lyra to a great sentence which is can I see your computer cave? <laughs> and that reminded me of a site that I, I often find in up the front room of our flat, which is you, Louis, in what has been referred to as either your bunker or your <laughs> fortress. I swear this comes up in our converse, just conversations. You just like to tell everyone my most secret environments. What's, what's, what's so secret about it? It's not, it's not uh, theoretical science. I don't tend to share it with the outside. If we had guests, which we won't be, we haven't for a long, long time. Well, let the listeners be our guests. You can be our guests, but you, you can't be privy to me spending time in the fortress. Basically, it's just a certain part of our sofa that I like. To play video games. To play video <laughs> games in. That's beside the point. Yes, the, the fortress involves the corner of the sofa generally a blanket or duvet on top of you i like to create a barrier of cushions yeah. and then <laughs> i find it safe and currently the witcher 3 yeah but i'm now stuck on fighting one of the bosses which is called the toad prince and yeah it's too hard um, and that that's also in the amber spy class along with elon musk <laughs> the toad prince <laughs> so lyra connects to the cave and this is pretty monumental moment because Lyra can immediately recognizes that she has to go into this alethiometer like state and this machine starts firing and it's it's like almost in dialogue with her now in the books the books were written in the 1990s and computers were perhaps not as powerful as they are now on the tv you've got these lovely kind of almost celestial like waveforms that are beautiful like yeah, maybe like a screensaver uh, but they they do look really good oh you know what it looks like it, it looks like maybe a projection that a dj would have if you yes. went to a club night yes like a... which you love clubbing oh yeah love to club yeah um and or it... like lasers 
Yeah. yeah. Where was the laser show? BBC budgets, am I right? <laughs> God. And it starts communicating with Lyra, showing her the symbols from the alethiometer. And I was so excited for this moment. This is my favourite moment in The Subtle Knife. But it's quite, it's quite old school in modern terms because it's a computer that pretty much only has text interaction. And so it's a bit like, are oh, you dust? <laughs> Y-E-S. <laughs> I am Lyra. Hello. <laughs> uh, and I built up my, this moment in my head to be this. And obviously it's modernised. Um, but I think this this is huge. And perhaps an issue with this episode that it, maybe it doesn't feel huge. I don't know if you... Did you feel that this was momentous? Uh, no, not so much. I think they could have given a whole episode to them. Yeah, That I would have so. been, I think, a bit more brave in terms of structure. Well, this series is only seven episodes compared to last series, which was eight episodes. And I would have really loved this to be drawn out because I think that's, to me, that's the end of the episode should be that moment. It's like, whoa, this thing recognises dust and it can communicate. It is, as Mary says, it's conscious, these conscious particles, which is amazing. These sh- So these shadow particles, they reveal themselves, they converse in this language. Like there, there's certainly some some typically Pullman referential names going on here. So this machine is called the cave and these particles are called shadow particles. And both of those things you could read as a reference to Plato's cave in which you have a group of people trapped inside a cave watching the shadows of life bounce in front of them via a fire. And they kind of interpret that as life or a reflection of life and they're they're ignorant to the realities of the real world and of course this machine that can allow people to perhaps see the light to understand more of their own world would be called the cave now this kind of led me a bit down a rabbit hole and we we've called this podcast dust busters and dust is this unknowable thing i mean Spoiler for the five books that have come out already. <laughs> we, we still don't have fully an answer, and I, we, we never will. Um, and this is maybe my first attempt at, at busting some dust. Galaxy brain meme here okay. is that, is dust stories? We as humans, our lives are the telling of a story. Each of our interactions is a story. And so that things that we interact with would naturally develop these shadow particles and they would be at their strongest on ourselves and in philip pullman's essay poco a poco he says stories are not made of language the fundamental particles of story are the smallest events we can find so small in fact that they are more or less abstract like dust exactly i think you've you've busted it jake yeah i think yep do we end the series there sorted <laughs> wrap that up i'll let philip know that i figured it out dear philip no need for <laughs> book of dust volume three nope. jake's done it i've cracked it um but I, I do like that and i think that's a that's a nicely humanist approach to the sense of a higher power definitely that it is something that comes from within that mm-hmm. it is not controlled by an outer authority as mrs Coulter might put it yeah that if you are controlled in some way by an authority like that, it kind of removes the autonomy of your actions. And this is a sense of creationism that is organic from within 
the lived experience. And it's also, if you think about, if we're going to, you know, think about actual stories and how people tell stories and how it's a way of communicating with one another and a chain of, you know, one person is told a story and then maybe they'll relay it to someone else and change the details slightly. Mm. Yeah, it's a nice living, fluid way of sort of going through generations and... And, and the way that you put it there actually reminds me of uh, uh, someone who certainly will get put in a similar circle to Philip Pullman, which is Richard Dawkins. Mm-hmm. And Richard Dawkins spoke of something like that, that there are, we have our genes, which are things that we pass between each other biologically. But then we, are, we have these things that we pass through each other culturally. Then we adapt them. We move on. We pass that along. We adapt it. We adapt it. We remix it. And you know what he called those things? Memes. Exactly. <laughs> So, Louis, are we saying that God is memes? Memes. <laughs> I think you've just ruined it. We were doing so well. Okay, forget the God is memes. Go back to what I was saying about uh, dust is stories. But I've often found myself pondering dust. Mm. To me, to me, dust is physically, it's, you know, when you're in a room and there's a shaft of sunlight Mm. and you can see the dust particles dancing yeah that's dust yeah that's that the great thing is that can be lowercase d dust but also uppercase d dust big d exactly (laughs) (laughs) it can be big d (laughs) so that is it like that's what happens with lyra uh lyra says god is memes (laughs) (laughs) then goes back to her world um no, she she re-meets up with Will. Re-meets. Re-meets. <laughs> she, Remix. she has met him, so she is re-meeting him on a, on a on a park bench in the botanical gardens. Um, that, that's an image to remember. That will get revisited. And Will, having had the police called on him, Lyra, having had this advice from from the cave, they both decide that they need to re-leave. <laughs> Really? They re-meet, now they have to re-leave. Yeah, and they head off. So that's Lyra and Will. And this can happens. we trust Mary? Oh, you said you loved her. But can we trust her? Or am I going to be upset? Uh, I don't know. I, I like Mary. Because in this episode, there's a, a a short scene where she's sort of debriefing with a colleague. Mm. A, and he, she's telling him about Lyra. Mm. And there's a slight sinister element right of almost morbid curiosity yeah um and i suppose that that can come from the nature of scientists who might have studied like, they want yeah, to study yeah, exactly. they don't see a person as a human being but rather something to be you know i mean picked and it, apart and tested and is that not exactly what we saw in Balfanger? exactly and perhaps you're touching on something louis that which is using Lyra's world as a way of kind of interrogating our own mm-hmm. and that something is perhaps easier to wrangle with when it's in a fantasy land but we bring it into our own and we start touching on that it becomes a lot harder to grapple with but I don't know I like Mary okay she's got a nice Irish accent yeah she's lovely <laughs> I hope we get more of her backstory and because I would like to I'd like to know more about her time as a nun mm. Uh, well, I can't make any promises there. Okay. I mean, unless... Maybe I'll do some fan fiction. Yeah. <laughs> um... And she... 
oh my god and then she can meet up with hot priest from fleabag yes and there can be some sort of forbidden love <laughs> star-crossed lovers yeah well so a lot happening with will and lyra there is some more mrs coulter magisterium which is actually oh, i just don't care about this part right okay sorry you don't need to apologize like you were saying they sh- the structure was slightly they should have ended that episode with the huge revelation of the cave mm. and there being some way of you know the symbols mm. to then go back to the courtroom drama aspect of the episode felt a bit tiresome yeah. yes um I, I i'd agree i think i think the staging of it all the look of it is great um but i think for better or worse it, it kind of gets bogged down in the bureaucracy of things uh the cardinal is dead and Father MacPhail is being manipulated by Mrs. Coulter to kind of take on that new mantle. There's an election of sorts. You've got the... We won't speak of that. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, so Father... <laughs> yeah, uh, there, well, yeah, there is an election fa- of sorts. Fa- fa- Father Graves, who does not get elected, is now in a cell just screaming, Count the votes! <laughs> But yes, uh, Father McVale gets elected as as the new leader. Um, there's also there is a trial, as you mentioned. This is Lansalius, who we met in series one. He's the kind of uh, communicator between humanity and the witches, and he's put on trial because of treasonous reasons. Because he's in communication with them, he's therefore not helping the Magisterium because he's keeping the witches' secrets. And it's a lot of your classic courtroom drama. And maybe this is to satiate a typical Sunday BBC crowd that you just need some people banging a gavel and shouting at each other. Um, Mrs. Coulter sort of looking devilish. Yes. Oh, she looks great. It's a good dark lip on her. Yeah, good staring. She's brilliant. Like any of this... um, their funerals seem quite I mean I know funerals aren't supposed to be fun yeah. but maybe they can be you're like where's the prawn sandwich <laughs> where are the quiches yeah exactly um, I don't think Mrs Coulter would be as intimidating in these scenes if she had a paper plate and a miniature quiche <laughs> and a sausage roll yeah. um, <laughs> I've completely lost my train of thought yeah. I'm now just thinking about mm, buff- when buff- the buffet will be dead yeah the buffet industry Completely in this economy, you can't have buffets. No, you can't. Um, there are no other women. Where are the women? What within the magisterium? Yeah. Well, that's that's uh, intentional. If you're thinking of this as a reflection of uh, religion. Oh, and yes. Also, going rewinding back to when Lyra finds um, Mary Malone, she can't believe that Mary is a physicist mm. as a woman. Yeah. Well, this because within Lyra's world, physics and science kind of. Combined in a way, like you have this experimental theology, and yeah, yeah, it is this hybridization of scientists and priests come together to study it. Not good. It's all the worst bits of everything. It's men, isn't it? Mm. But Lance Alias, down for treason, awful sounding punishment, uh, eight years in a labor camp with split demon. Demon entrapment. Yeah, horrible. Sounds like our relationship. (laughs) 
Um, but within all of this, there's lots of um, very Nazi and also Catholic imagery that kind of go hand in hand. The electing of the new cardinal, the way that paper and fire is used in that, like that is the same way that you would elect a new pope. Um, but then the Nazi imagery in the outfits and also the language. So they're going to attack the witches. It's uh, referred to as a cleansing of them, that it's a necessary sin. Um, Father MacPhail then also self-flagellates, which is a nicely creepy scene. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, this is really, this is where your Catholic past really mm. comes into its own. So Jake grew up in a Catholic school. Mm. Nice Catholic well, boy. I didn't grow up in the Catholic school. <laughs> I, I'm not like Lyra and I was dumb, dumb to St. Richard's. But would you say a weekend Catholic? Uh, yeah, I did go to a, I went to a Catholic school and uh, had mass regularly in services, etc. But very early on, I mean, we didn't know each other at that point. No. But very early on, I think you started to question it. And yeah. probably f- what age do you reckon? Oh, young, like, I don't know, 12? Yeah. 11 or 12. I would have loved these books mm-hmm. in school because I only discovered them. Like, they, they, they existed at that point. I'd actually been bought them, ironically. I was given a box set of these books and couldn't really get into them. Uh, and it was only when, like, we had already met that I started reading them. So, what, 17, 18? Like, I would have just adored having these during school and really being into them, particularly There's at Catholic school. Something really interesting of i mean i wonder the youngest age who could come to these books and get into them do you reckon Um, seven yeah i think northern lights i mean when you consider what happens to roger at the end of that i don't know if you want a seven-year-old but maybe around 10 the age of 10 yeah the thing is because i'm a slow read i enjoy reading i just struggle at doing it quickly i think if i had come to them when i was that age Mm. around the same time as harry potter I probably, I would have loved them. I think if, in terms of your Harry Potters, you could get, when you're a prisoner of Azkaban, you could probably get into these as well. But there is so much theology and just the subtext, mm. as I understand it, from watching the series. It's interesting to me how children can read this and l- love them and be their favourite books. But there's so many huge ideas to be grappling with. That's what that I think. even we're yeah. now sitting here as 27-year-olds. Yeah. I know. That, that, that's what I love about them. Yeah. And why we'll consistently just keep going back to them. We're, what were we... We were talking about Father MacPhail burning his hands. Yeah, self-flagellation. Um, yes. Uh, and what I thought was interesting is that his, his demon is the one telling him to do it. Oh, um, how annoyed would you be if your demon settled as a tiny lizard? <laughs> like, which is the guy that's got the spider as his demon? I know. I mean, that's just... Imagine, like, if you're just at home and then like, you're like, oh, there's a spider in the bath, splat, and you accidentally kill your husband. <laughs> no, but your demon can't go too far away from its human. Yeah, but, it, it, like, if he's just brushing his teeth... Oh, yeah. And then... No, but you would... That's silly because you would know that your husband's demon is a spider. What if you didn't have your contacts in? That's true. Yeah. <laughs> a spider is... Yeah, I'd be annoyed if I had a spider, annoyed if I had a lizard particularly a lizard that keeps telling me to burn my hands yeah um and this is a kind of darker demon interaction that we haven't actually seen uh, we've seen the golden monkey but this one is like is purposely asking its not owner but itself to harm itself and it's getting into territory that is 
explored more within the secret commonwealth when you see the darker side of Masochism. that human demon relationship yeah like there is some quite uh unsettling stuff that happens with the demons that within the his dark materials trilogy you don't actually see that much you saw a little bit of it in um the first season between mrs coulter and her her monkey her de- her demon yeah that, that she's almost abusive to it yeah and the events of Secret Commonwealth have, have uh, kind of theorised on that relationship a bit more. Um, readers who or listeners who have read that will know what I'm talking about there. Um, apologies to everyone else. <laughs> Father MacPhail gets elected and Mrs Coulter realises that Lyra has crossed through the bridge to the other world. And this kind of comes together as a moment that suggests that Mrs. Coulter is almost now that she she's executed her plan. She's got her puppet to the top of the tree. She's almost bored of it. Mm. Lyra's gone through to the other world. There's a whole world, other world of power for her to achieve, like endless multiverses, even. And the Magisterium has no use for her anymore, which is quite cool and is a great suggestion of just her ultimate quest of power and how much of that is actually tied to her quest for Lyra like how much do you believe that like whether she does she want Lyra does she want power what do you think I think you can't really separate them Mm. I think it's so tightly woven in her mind anyway yes and unfortunately it, it kind of frustrated me when we left it on that point because it did make me think, why, why do we spend all that time on the magisterium stuff? Like, of her building them all up for then her to just go off again. Mm. Because she is a great villain. And she's such fun to watch. And we've kind of slogged through these magisterium bits. And I can only imagine that that is, like, us having to eat our vegetables. We've just got to get through it because, like, the magisterium are going to become like the big baddies like the first order from star wars like they've got they've got the look they need the army and we just had to we've got to spend this time with them but then miss calls comes on screen and it's like i just want her just let her be the villain it's i want all these old men just holding forth yeah yeah absolutely um and the the grand finale is mrs coulter leaving at the same time that father mcphail uh, executes an order to burn down the witches' homes, which is stylistically an impressive scene. Witches, yeah, oh, good. <laughs> but, but we haven't spent enough time with the witches for me to honestly care about. Care, much. yeah. Right? And if we had been within this habitat, if we had seen them living within it, if we had got to know the workings of their home. Mm seeing it destroyed we would we would feel that they're they're still unknowable entities in my mind yeah they haven't they're very cool but they haven't been given enough screen time no to really build up a enough meat and and when they are on screen they have this kind of forced fantasy arch dialogue that's not impenetrable I mean there was the scene there was a scene the two of them in this episode Two witches in the f- like misty forest. Yeah, but like y- y- that's not enough for us no. to feel like 
the devastation yeah. of the events at the end of the episode. And and then the episode ends there and it feels like, to me at least, this episode it said the quiet part's loud and the loud part's quiet. Like we wanted we want that Lyra revelation, we want that Lyra in our world, Lyra connecting dust Lyra connecting to dust, dust travelling between worlds or existing between worlds. This is huge. That's what I want as like as the meat. And that gets relegated to the vegetables mm-hmm. and it's the stuff that we're not so keen on that gets amplified and uh, I think structurally you almost needed a reversal of everything yeah. in this one to get through all the magisterium stuff to begin with mm. um, but I, I think this is this is perhaps an issue that typifies the second episodes of lots of series mm. like you, if you go back and watch Game of Thrones this is a lot of the comments for your second episode episode one of a new series you're reminding people what's happened but you're also getting people excited again like you're showing we had that we got Shittigadze we got Will and Lyra together we've got great chemistry there it's all very exciting and then episode two is laying the foundation putting the chess pieces on the board for what's to come in the next five weeks so that was series two episode two The Cave but that's not the end of our episode because as always this series we've got a special guest with us a special guest that's sitting on Louis's lap she's slept all the way through <laughs> and we're going to find out she's resting with with her back foot on her face <laughs> and we're going to find out exactly what Peggy's been this week So, Lou, she is very much a puppy. We've had her for two weeks now. And in that two weeks, you've been saying, is she changing? Is she changing? <laughs> is she bigger? Uh, I think she is bigger. It's hard when you're with um, a puppy every day to notice them changing. But I definitely think she's got more chunk to her. She feels less fragile now. Okay. But she's definitely got the personality. When she's awake and boisterous... She's sort of a bit shark-like. Mm. Like a, a tiny baby shark. She's baby shark. She's baby shark. I do sing that to her. So she's gone from polar bear yeah. to a baby shark. Baby shark. These are quite uh, in, intense... <laughs> Transitions. Intense, intense creatures that could do some serious damage. But the thing is, what's weird with puppies is that... I think some people don't know this. They lose their teeth. Mm. Um, so she's got quite a weird tooth situation now. She's quite gappy because she's lost some teeth, but some of her baby teeth are still around. Well, there we are. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Dustbusters. It's been wonderful to have you with us. We hope you'll join us for next week's episode, Theft. Dustbusters is produced by Jake Cunningham. Our music is by Dan Yakano. And our artwork is by Sam Mason.